Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? My name is Christian Wagner and I'm the Militant Thomist. So I've hit a thousand subscribers. This is my thousand subscriber special. I will for once actually um, at least attempt to engage with a Protestant view on something. I'm not an apologist nor the son of an apologist. And this will be a one-time thing. So enjoy it while it lasts. And you can ask questions and everything and all that such stuff. The wife got a new sparkling water. I'm not sure what I think about it. The the virgin drink sparkling water versus the Chad just die and drink Coke. Okay, so I made a little slideshow to just to just to help me out here. Let me go to slides. Let me add it. Gosh. But before that, uh, if you enjoy what I'm doing, become a patron at patreon.com slash Christian Wagner. That really helps me out to continue what I do. And you'll also get access to other articles, videos, and stuff like that. And then um, join um, if you suck at Greek, because I know all of you need help with your Greek. Because, let's face it, you've lost it since seminary. Then go to fluentgreeknt.com and use the code militant for 20% off. Yeah. Oh, I guess that would be the Chad is the white monster. Okay. And uh, the other Paul is excited to hear about some works righteousness. Okay. Let us begin. So this specifically is going to be talking about faith and works. Now I could have done a lot more and uh, maybe in the future, maybe for my 1500 subscriber special or something like that i'll do another one of these i will just be dealing with specifically the uh the definition of faith the relationship between faith and charity and then the meritoriousness of works i'm not going to get into the formal cause of justification although i will mention it and uh, the formal cause is definitely something which is very important which is uh the disagreement whether the formal cause is uh something which is inherent and inchoate that is the righteousness of christ in us or something which is external to us that is the merits of the righteousness of christ outside of us but um that we'll have to wait for another day because i will not be dealing with that today so let us begin Militant Jamie says his Greek is great. Militant Jamie, you want to make it even better? FluentGreekNT.com. That's what will make it better. Okay, so first I'm going to go over the Protestant doctrine of faith, and then eventually I'll get into works. So faith is said to be, quote, to trust in the merits of Christ, that is, for the sake of God, certainly wishes to be reconciled. That for his sake, God certainly wishes to be reconciled with us, and that's Melanchthon. Then also he says, faith signifies not only a knowledge of the history, but such faith as a sense to the promise. Or, in Turretin's word, that which involves a filial apprehension of Christ and his benefits. So when it comes to the doctrine of faith in the uh, broadly Protestant view, I don't think there's any disagreements between the Reformed and Lutheran schools on this question. Faith, rather than having its object, uh, the certain objective realities, um, merely, such as uh, the person and work of Christ, there's also a subjective uh, conviction which is added to it, that is, the faith of Christ applied to us. That, um, that we are trusting upon the fact that not only that Christ died 
and Christ died for us, but that this death is applied to us. Whereas uh, with with uh, the Catholic view on the matter of the definition of faith, there is not that same subjective element which is added to us. So um, then with the relationship between justification, which has to do with faith, and sanctification, which has to do with charity, Turton gives us five differences. So first, as to their object, justification is considered with the guilt of sin, sanctification with the pollution of sin. Uh, second, as to their form, uh, justification consists in the judicial and forensic or legal remission of sin and imputation of righteousness. In the latter, with the physical and moral act, the infusion of righteousness and internal renovation. So again, Protestants don't deny the infusion of righteousness, but they just don't include it in justification. So third, as to the recipient subject. To the former, that is justification, man holds himself objectively on the part of God acquitting, to the latter on the part of God renewing subjectively. Then fourth, as to two degrees, justification is whole and entire, where sanctification increases um, moment after moment or uh, degree after degree in more holiness. Then fifth, as to order, which this is going to be the most important part, because... When it comes to the first and second, they're very important. Um, and third, but fourth is not really that important. But to the fifth, as to order, that is prior, at least in the order of nature, because God sanctifies those who are reconciled and justified by faith. This, however, follows. So sanctification follows justification. So he further writes, first in principle, the first in principle fruit of faith, oh, Sorry, that charity is the first and principal fruit of faith. And although love is not the form of faith, but may be distinguished from it, it cannot on that account be said to be separate from it. It is the proper and immediate effect of faith, which cannot be separated from its cause. So whereas in the uh, in the reformed uh, view, when it comes to the relationship between faith and charity, charity flows from faith as an effect to its cause. But in the Romanist view of the matter. Uh, charity is the form of faith. That is the vivifying principle um, of faith. Just as the soul is to the body, so charity is to faith. Okay, now I'm going to go over a bit of the differences, although I did mention them before. So the differences between Protestants and Catholics isn't on sola fide. Um, I, I would definitely like to emphasize that, and I have emphasized that, because when you get into uh, polemics between Protestants and Catholics on the matter of uh, soteriology, usually it's just uh, Protestants are stupid and wrong because they believe in justification by faith alone. That's usually what you'll get. But that's not necessarily... Um, I don't, at least, it's my opinion that that's not even really a difference between the Protestant Catholic view. I believe um, when it comes to faith that Protestants and Catholics would agree on the instrumentality of it and the sole instrumentality of it. So when it comes to um, the the actual differences, the first is going to be the definition of faith. Second is going to be the formal cause of justification. That's the grounds of justification, whether of as I said before, imputation or the inchoate righteousness of Christ. And third, on the uh, on satisfaction, which is referring to um, works as satisfying for the temporal effects due to sin, which I didn't. I also am not going to cover. I'm just going to cover the definition of faith and then uh, 
charity and faith, and then uh, merit. So regarding the instrument justification, because I know it's going to be controversial to say that uh, there is no difference when it comes to sola fide, at least in the classical sense of the Reformed view, both the Reformed and Catholic agree. So if you read Newman right here, he says, quote, there would be nothing inconsistent then if faith being the sole instrument of justification, and yet baptism also the sole instrument, and that at the same time, because in distinct senses, an inward instrument in no way interfering with an outward instrument. And the inward instrument is faith, and the outward instrument is baptism. Baptism might be the hand of the giver, and faith the hand of the receiver. And notice he says soul instrument. And then Turton basically says the same thing. He says, quote, although the sacraments are external means applying grace and justification, this does not hinder faith from being called the internal instrument and means on the part of man for receiving this benefit. So now um, the first error is going to be the equivocal use of the term faith. Okay. So faith is not taken in a subjective sense, rather it's taken in an objective sense, the conviction of the articles of faith. So under a Protestant view of faith, included under the belief in the person and work of Christ, it's also a belief in firm conviction in the application of the person and work of person and work of Christ, well, actually the effect of the person and work of Christ on you. So in, in a Catholic view, it's the conviction of the articles of faith, the objective reality of the person and work of Christ as revealed by God, not necessarily as applied to us. And then Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But faith in the subjective sense would be liable to deceit and mere conjecture. And a good example is that in the matter of faith that Christ justifies those who have faith in him, not necessarily the conjecture that I have true faith and am therefore justified by him, such a thing cannot be known. So the fact that Christ justifies the ungodly, that is an objective fact, that is an article of faith. But the fact that I am one of those ungodly ones that am justified, that is not an object of faith, but it is an object of mere conjecture and therefore cannot be an article of faith. Okay, and I hope that was actually clear. So this places too heavy a burden than is given in sacred scripture and not presuming upon infallible conviction of the subjective application. God and his promises are not doubted, but rather we are doubted because uh, a Lutheran might object and Lutherans often object. This is a st much stronger stream within, the, within Lutheran thought. Lutherans often would object that by our our denial of the subjective application being uh, part of faith, that we are mistrusting or doubting God. But this is not so, because we are not really doubting God, but we are actually doubting ourselves in this, is that we know that we cannot have an infallible conviction of the fact that we have a uh, right and proper faith and that we rightly receive um, the gifts of justification. That's not something which can be known because scripture does not tell us those things. Scripture just gives us, um, scripture gives us uh, those objective truths about uh, that group of people and the conditions which uh, are included under justification, not necessarily uh, whether we, whether we, uh, meet those conditions, if that makes sense. So this is really a heavier burden which is placed on the faithful.
saying that that is included under the definition of faith. Okay, then also another error is the separation of faith and charity. And then uh, by separation, we must be uh, very particular because in one sense it's true, in another sense it's not true when referring to the Protestants. So by separation, I do not mean that in the Protestant view, charity does not necessarily flow from, flow from faith, for it is affirmed within Protestantism that charity does necessarily flow from faith. But that faith is first prior to charity, although not temporally, that is not due to time. And second, it is not formed by charity, which you can see in Turretin above. So on the other hand, uh, Catholics would say that that faith is not prior to charity. And then also would say that uh, charity is um, contemporaneous. I think that's a, that's a correct word, contemporaneous with with um with faith because it is the form of faith just as the body cannot exist without the soul so faith cannot exist without charity so first it is by anthropological necessity so by the constitution of our being that love is the form of faith for faith is an act of the intellect that is an act of right reason towards a certain object which is revelation the will is submitted to the intellect in right reason by necessity. <clears throat> Sorry, the bubbly drink is getting to me, causing me to burp. So <clears throat> in right reason, whereas um, whereas our intellect is, is correctly disposed to a certain object, because, uh, because our will is a lower faculty, our will is submitted to our intellect. And therefore, with right reason, so is their right will towards the ju judgment presented by the intellect to the will. And this right judgment and act of the will is called charity. So there is this uh, necessarily necessary existence of charity when there is the existence of faith. And then second, uh, we can call it the necessity of friendship. Because when it comes to uh, when it, when it comes to the act of justification and the relationship which is entered between God and man, it is described as a friendship, which does not only include a uh, a knowledge of the thing known, but also a love towards the thing known. But that's not that's not necessarily um, a rock solid argument, but it is an argument. One could say, I guess, one could conjecture that. Uh, that there is no friendship in uh, in the entrance of justification, but uh, I don't know why somebody would say that. Okay, then continued. So many texts can be brought forth. So I'm going to, let me see, I'm going to pull up these texts real quick for us, to, for us to look at. Let me share my screen. Okay. Actually, I shouldn't add it until I've, until I've actually got it. Okay, so let's see. In Scripture. So the first one's going to be the Gospel according to St. Luke. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. Chapter 7. King James, because we're based over here. This cringe NIV. Oh. I hate all these ads on this Bible website. It's the worst. 
Okay, let's go to 40, verse 47. And then I'll share my screen. There you go. So this is referring to the uh, the woman which entered and washed the feet of Jesus with her tears. So starting verse 7, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said to her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is that that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. So again, faith down here in verse 50, Thy faith has saved thee, is connected up here with verse 47. Um, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And then let's go to the second one, which is going to be First Peter 4, 8. And I'm also going to give you the Protestant interpretation of these verses. And then I think, there we go. And above all things, wait, actually, let's just put the whole chapter. We don't read verses out of context. For, I'll start at verse 6. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore be ye therefore sober and watch in a prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then here um, having fervent charity among yourselves, and then on that theological principle that charity shall cover a multitude of sins. And then I know, I know the other Paul. I know, I know. Keep coping in the comments. I told you I'm going to give you the Protestant interpretation. Don't even, don't even comment on here. Okay. I know the other Paul. I know. You think I'm quoting massive tomes from Turretin and I didn't I don't know the Protestant view. I know the Protestant reading of these verses. And then it's going to be the second half of this verse that is important. The first half is really an epistemic principle. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Okay. And then 1 Corinthians 13, 2. I really should have gotten this in like a document or something. Because the argument, the other Paul, is not going to be the one you think it's going to be. Okay. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity and become as a sounding brass or a tinkering cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. Okay, so first, we must note the Reformed reading of these texts. So the Reformed reading is going to be, the Reformed reading of these texts is going to be that um, that charity and its outflowing from faith is that principle whereby we may have assurance that uh, it is a certain uh, epistemic principle 
that we know our justification because of the charity which flows from faith. That is going to be the Reformed reading of these verses. But I don't think this works. Um, although, although, yeah, I forgot my second point. We we may admit a certain validity, like I said in uh, in the one first John, that that may be consonant with the text. But what I'm really trying to get, oh, somebody, oh, I forgot. I have uh, I have super chats. Oh, thanks, Bonaventure. Yeah, send those super chats, baby. Okay, so uh, yes, Bonaventure, you you uh, you distracted me. What am I trying to think? Oh, yeah. So the reason why I think it's not consonant with those texts is because of the the principle which is outlaid in them that the one without charity, even with faith, is dead. And the fact that the spiritual life without charity is dead, because if the spiritual life is dead without charity or the one is not in God without charity, then you cannot have this um, where is then you cannot have this uh, preceding existence of faith, even logically prior to charity, because if it's logically prior, then that would be a, a dead faith, since um, since the spiritual life is only vivified and alive in charity, as was laid out in these verses. I'm not saying that the teaching of these verses is necessarily um, asserting the principle, but from the propositions given in these principle in these verses, the principle follows. So that was my point, the other Paul. Stop coping. No cope. Okay. So charity equals the works of the law. So a, an objection that you'll get, especially in Lutheran authors, is that since uh, since charity is the um, is the the law in miniature, so to speak, that the charity is that first commandment of the law. Uh, from which all other commandments of the law flows, that it would be considered a work or uh, be, be referred to as works. And of course, uh, scripture does, sacred, admittedly, sacred scripture does refer to charity as the works of the law, such as um, a, a Thomistic reading of James would have, uh, would have uh, without the works of the law, the works of the law there, he would say at least refers to charity itself. So there's this understanding even in the, the Romanist authors. And yes, a super chat does give merit. It does. <laughs> so uh, it may be responded. And uh, the first traditional response that you'll get from, well, I, I don't mean traditional, I mean popular response that you'll get is that works is glossed in the sense of the judicial or ceremonial works. But uh, while this is a this is a reading which is brought forth by a lot of people, I don't necessarily like that reading. Um, I, I don't. St. Thomas doesn't read it in that way, in, in at least a lot of cases, such as in Romans. In Galatians, on the other hand, he would read them in that way. But in Romans, he does not. I think he's right about Galatians, works of the law, referring to uh, merely judicial or ceremonial works. But I think in Romans, it's pretty clear he's referring to all works. But second, works is speaking of external works, which are not in say meritorious. So that that is the way in which um, which works would be read in Romans. Um, and then a good example is we are justified by the righteousness of Christ, not the works of the law, because while we have an inchoate righteousness as the formal cause of our justification, such righteousness is not externos per se, but is per et a externos, yet internos simul supernos. So um, 
that 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 may be very confusing. So so uh, the the righteousness is not outside of us per se, but it is by and from outside of us. Yet it's inside of us and above us at the same time. So if that if that makes any more sense out of out of that, so the works are referring to external and meritorious works, not necessarily referring to charity, which would be a gift. So that's the um, that's the reading, and then also um, it is supported by the reading of the righteousness of Christ uh, in opposition to the works of the law. Because the righteousness of Christ is not our works, but the righteousness of Christ is something that does exist in us. Okay, you appear to rely on dead and saving faith being fundamentally the same thing, just with different conditions. That premise I deny. I don't know where I said that. Where did I say that? I mean, I use Thomas's reading of James as an example. Okay, now let's get to merit. But first, I'm going to try to think think what the heck the other Paul is trying to get at. Try to stretch my small mind to the big brain of the other Paul. No, I'm saying. Okay, let's 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 go back here. Let's let's uh, let's um, do a little bit of repetition of what's already been said. A little bit of recollection. So it's my fundamental conviction that the definition of faith itself is an issue when it comes to uh, Protestants and Catholics. And your objection about faith and charity. I can barely recollect it now. <laughs> yeah, with the... Uh, but even even within the reform view, there's an understanding of the difference between uh, fiducia and then a mere historical faith. So I, not really, not really understanding what's going on here. My my small brain is not stretching to to the big brain of the other Paul right now. Okay, so now uh, this is gonna make the other Paul absolutely poop his pants when he when he hears this one. This is going to make this is going to have so much coping um, and seething that's going to be going on here. So on works regarding merit, there seems to be much agreement. Honestly, honestly, guys, I think it is my conviction, my fundamental conviction that there is not disagreement between the reformed and Roman Catholics when it comes to the idea of merit. Okay, so first let us establish what we mean by merit. And then I'm going to ask you if you see any, gosh, the slide thing is in my way. That is so annoying. There you go. So Aquinas, when referring to merit, says, quote, Now it is clear that between God and man there is the greatest inequality, for they are infinitely apart, and all man's good is from God. Hence, there could be no justice of absolute equity, equality between man and God, but only of a certain proportion inasmuch as both operate after their own manner. Now, the manner and measure of human virtue is in man from God. Hence, man's merit with God only exists on the presupposition of the divine ordination, so that man obtains from God as a reward of his operation. 
what God gives him the power of operation for even as natural things by their proper movements and operations obtain that to which they were ordained by God differently indeed since the rational creature moves itself to act by its free will hence its action has the character of merit which is not so in other creatures so basically what what Aquinas is saying here is the same thing as Augustine is that uh, merit is just God crowning his own gifts in us and that it's not from the idea of strict merit or of natural justice whereby God owes us anything. Rather, on the other hand, it's a gratuitous act where he's crowning those graces which are given to us. And then the Council of Trent further says, If anyone saith that the just ought not for the good works done in God, to expect and hope for eternal recompense from God through his mercy and the merit of Jesus Christ, if so be that they persevere to the end in well-doing and in keeping the commandments, let it be anathema. Notice that this merit is through his mercy and the merit of Jesus Christ. So it's not one of strict uh, justice. And then I also have a section from Cajetan that I'm going to show you real quick before we get into Turretin and your minds get absolutely nuked. Okay. There we go. Sorry, this is a scan from from my book. Sorry for all the notes. See, I do actually read. Pay attention when I read. Okay. So merit is said of a voluntary work. Wait, is this the... Yes, it is. Merit is said of a voluntary work, whether interior or external, to which by right a payment or reward is due. So that is what merit refers to. When we speak of merit, it is something by right a payment or reward is due. So let's see what uh, let's see what Cajetan thinks about this. The apostle says, blah, blah. Hence, four elements go together to constitute the merit, the person meriting, the voluntary work of merit, the payment due for the merit, and the person rendering payment. The last is essential since it would be pointless to merit unless it be from some person rendering one payment. Since we are discussing our merit before God, we must explain how men can merit from God a reward for their works. It appears problematical that God would by right render payment for our works, since between God and ourselves there is no right, strictly or absolutely speaking. So notice, he's speaking of merit, not in its proper sense right here, to, by, to which by right a payment or reward is due. So there is no right. So we can't even speak of merit in its proper sense. We can only speak of merit in its improper sense. There is only a derived kind of right, which is much less than the right of a son towards his father and of a slave towards his master. So we have less right over God to merit than a slave has the right over his master or a son towards his father. How much less are we in relation to God than a man who is slave in relation to the ma man who is his master? and then a son in relation to the earthly father who beget him. So if, as it is written in Book 4 of the Ethics, there is no right strictly and absolutely speaking, but only a derivative kind of right between a slave and master and between father and son, then much less is there a right between ourselves and God. So notice, absolutely no right of strict justice between us and God, even less than a slave towards his master. All that the slave is belongs to the master. A son cannot render as much to his father as he has received. 
Hence, a right strictly and absolutely considered cannot exist between master and slave and between father and son. It is true to a much greater extent that all that a man is belongs to God, and that man cannot render as much to God as he has received. Hence, man cannot merit something from God that would be due to him by right, unless this be a right so weakened that it be far less than a right between a master and slave and father and son. Even such a weakened right is not absolutely speaking found between God and man. So even a right less than that between a son and father, between a slave and master, even that taken and put at 1% is still not absolutely speaking existent between God and man. In fact, the more and the better a man's interior and outward works, so much more does he owe to God since it is God who works both in us to will and to complete our every action. So even the more so that God gives grace, the more we owe to him, and there's no natural right of God owing us for our works. This weakened right is found between man and God only by reason of the divine ordination by which God ordained our works to be meritorious before him. So the only reason it, uh, that there is even this reward for our uh, for our merits notice merit is being used in an improper and not a natural sense the only reason is because there's a divine ordination god has promised that because of x he will give y by his covenant not by natural right when man merits anything before god god never becomes man's debtor but rather his own if even this weakened debt were given in an absolute sense between man and god then God would owe man the payment he earned. But it is obvious that God is in debt to no one, as Paul says in Romans 12 or 11.35. God is therefore indebted to himself alone, that he should carry out his own will, by which he granted that human works would be meritorious, so he would render to man the reward for his works. This is undoubtedly true about the simple and absolute sense of merit. In other cases, an agreement is presupposed between God and man on some matter, as among men when a master makes a pact of some kind with his slave. In this case, a right can arise between master and slave. Thus, if God deigns to make a pact with man, a right can arise between man and God with reference to the matter of agreement. So again, covenantal. It's a covenantal merit, not a merit of natural right. We often read in the Old Testament that God deigned to enter covenants with men. Genesis 9 records God's covenant to never again permit a flood over the whole world. Genesis 15 describes God's covenant with Abraham concerning the land of Canaan, which was to be given to his offspring. Genesis 17 tells of the covenant of circumcision. In Exodus 24, Moses says this is the blood of the covenant, and so on and so forth. And I'm gonna... These texts make it clear that there can be in our works an element of merit, even by right with reference to the reward concerning which an agreement has been made with God. So where is their right of merit by right? Only with reference to the reward concerning which an agreement has been made with God. So only covenantal, so not by strict right, but only by covenantal right. Keep in mind, though, that to whatever extent there is a pact between God and man concerning a reward, still God never falls into our debt, but only in debt to himself. For in view of the agreement made, there is due to our works the reward on which was agreed. God does not thereby become indebted to us regarding this reward, but rather indebted to his own prior determination by which he deigned to enter a pact with us. Consequently, we profess in full truth 
that God is indebted to no one but to himself. One can therefore ascertain a double aspect of merit before God in our works. There is first the weak and right, and second the agreement. And remember, the weak and right is covenantal, and it is also not taken in its proper sense. But never is God indebted to us. Okay. So now we got this right here. There you go. Thank you, Bonaventure. Okay, so it is my conviction that that right there is in complete and total agreement with the Reformed. I'm going to prove it right here. Let's see what Turretin says. So Turretin in his... How do I get that slide? There you go. Turretin in his statement of the question in regard to merit, he is going to make a few denials of what this question is and is not about. So he's going to say, quote, the question is not one are good works pleasing and acceptable to God, and do they obtain from God the reward of life? For this we willingly grant to our opponents, provided a gratuitous, not a due reward is meant. So is a gratuitous and a due reward meant, according to Cajetan, according to Aquinas, according to the Council of Trent? Yes. Second, the question is not, is it lawful to work with a view to a reward? We do not deny that this can be done. A twofold caution being used. First, that it be the view of the reward as a gratuitous boon and not as a due price. Again, it is gratuitous and not a due price. It is not of strict and natural right, as we said before. It's only spoken in the improper sense. Second, that it is not regarded alone or primarily and principally, but last principally and secondarily after the glory of God, and so on. So three, the question is not, do works have any relation to eternal life? And is there any suitableness and proportion between good works and eternal life? For we confess that there is a relation of order and of connection, such as exists between the means and the end, the way and the goal, the contest and the crown, the antecedent and the consequent. Also, there is a fitness proportion, as it were, between things of the same order, such as between sowing and the harvest and first fruits and the mass, the beginning and the completion of a thing. Rather, the question is, do they have the relation of cause properly so called? And is there between them a proportion of equality of and of commensuration? And these things are denied, just as the reform deny it. We deny that it's a strict and natural right which is being taken upon. And then four, the question is not all God by agreement to pay a reward to good works. For we do not deny that God from time to time he gave the promise is necessarily bound to fulfill it and thus has made a, in a certain measure a debtor not to us but to himself and to his own faithfulness. Huh, what does this sound like? What does this sound like? I feel like I've heard um, God being made a debtor to himself and also uh, being bound by a certain promise. I feel like I've heard this somewhere. This is this is weird. Oh, right. That's Cajetan. This is exactly almost word for word in line with Cajetan. This is quite surprising. Rather, the question is, do works from their intrinsic value and worth? Notice it's denied that there is from the intrinsic value and worth. Merit and obtain the reward promised by God and by the virtue of which they can be said to affect salvation itself. Our opponents affirm, no, they don't. We deny. We deny with you. Okay, then that's all. I'm going to go back to the... Uh, 
separation of faith and charity. So yeah, when it comes to the other Paul saying, you appear to rely on dead and saving faith being fundamentally the same thing, just with different conditions that premise I deny. So what is denied by the reformed is that the vivifying principle of faith is charity and that saving faith can exist prior, although not temporally prior to charity. But the purpose of the texts I brought forth and the purpose of the reasoning that I brought forth shows that um, charity is a necessary condition for this existence. So since faith I means since charity is a necessary existence, then uh, faith cannot exist even logically prior. So that is impossible. So there you go. And then you said something else. Okay, so he's, again, this is the whole state of the question. These objections can be avoided by taking faith not as a mere intellect, but a disposition of the will. A true trust is the Greek term pistis often denotes. Charity follows, but is not identical. Again, that is the whole state of the question when it comes to equivocal use of the term faith. So, yes, that would be the response. A necessary condition or consequence, why should I grant the former? Okay, let me think of a good analogy that would, that would be helpful here. Um, because the reform would say it would be a consequence, a necessary consequence. So... Um, it'd be like saying in order for grilled cheese to exist, there needs to be bread. That is a necessary condition. So when it comes to the spiritual life from the verses quoted and union with God from the verses quoted, there is the necessary existence of charity. So your grilled cheese doesn't exist without bread in the same way, in a similar way, in an analogous way, an analogy of proper proportionality. We do not exist in life with God without charity. Unless you want to say that um, with that initial union of faith, there is not life in God, but life in God only results from that. But that would be really weird. So the fact that um, charity is that necessary condition. Okay, any other questions? Can't wait to have all the people fuming about me saying that Turretin agrees with the Romanists on merit. It's going to be great. Oh yeah, I, I forgot I have super chats now. They can be used in the, the Pope Michael. I agree with this analogy because union with God is not only justification. What? Maybe you meant it the opposite way. I agree with this analogy because justification is not only union with God. 
Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna step right on out of here real quick while I'm ahead. Okay. So thank you guys for for hanging out. Um let me know what you would like me to also cover. But remember, no no polemical stuff. This was it. This is all you guys get. Okay, so thank you, and do penance for the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, somebody said they have a question. Militant Jamie has a question. So I will stop my intro, and I hope Militant Jamie didn't leave. I'm going to give him one minute. You have one minute, Militant Jamie, to let me know you're here or I'm going. Yeah, also, I think the uh, another important point when it comes to uh, charity being the form of faith is I think uh, the idea of faith working through love being uh, love, which is resultant from faith is kind of a cope reading I'm not gonna lie it's a very unnatural reading of galatians so militant jamie you got like 30 more seconds better let me know you're here i stopped i stopped my whole my whole outro for you militant jamie Can't believe this man. He's just gonna make me. Oh, Protestant apologetics one hundred. Your mom is a cope reading. Yeah, my time is valuable. I need to keep reading my papist stuff. Gosh. Okay. You got like thoughts on Flannery O'Connor. I've actually never read Flannery O'Connor, but I should. I have heard amazing things about Flannery O'Connor because she was apparently a based Thomist. Dang, you're really going to do me like this, Militant Jamie. I can't believe you. Maybe he was just trolling. Okay, if any of you else have questions, I'll stick around for like another minute. Militant Jamie. Okay, I'm going to leave. Who wrote the supplementum? Hmm. I'm actually not sure. But I know who... Well, 
it's really who collected the supplementum, not really who wrote the supplementum. St. Thomas wrote the supplementum, but it was just collected by his students from his uh, lectures on the commentary on the sentences. So it's still all, <laughs> I remember I was, uh, I saw this one of these uh, reformed Thomist guys a while back when James White was quoting the Summa about, about purgatory. And the guy said, be careful. That's part of the supplementum. St. Thomas probably didn't believe in purgatory. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> he obviously did. Like, read literally all of the rest of his writings on it. What's, what's your phronema? I have, I have the noose of Christ, dude. Order of things to read before the Summa. Um, so the, his commentary on the 10 commandments is articulis fide his comment. That's the articles of faith His um, his commentary on the Ave, uh, the ratione, ratione, rationibus. I think it might be rationibus, um, fide is, is reasons for the faith. And then his compendium theologiae. And once you've read all those things, you should be well prepared for the Summa. I'm thinking eventually I'll just kind of do a video commentary sort of thing on all of the basic texts. Like I'm kind of doing on his um, Articulis Fide. His Martellancy, Karl Marx. Did he, did he say something up there that I missed? Now listen, Jamie, if you come back and ask a question, it's going to have to be like a $500 super chat for me to answer it. No, I don't see anything. The Anglican view on icons. Which Anglican view are you talking about? There's plenty of Anglican views. I'm just being cheeky. So there's some that'll say that... Um, there's really three views. There's a strict reformed view, which uh, denies the making of icons. There's a more moderate uh, Lutheran view, which would, well, Lutheran-esque view, which would affirm the making of icons, but not necessarily the veneration of icons. And there's kind of an Anglo-Catholic view, which would uh, basically be Nicaea too. Submit to Henry of Ghent. No, nah, Henry of Ghent was so lame. He tried to get St. Thomas um axed then henry of ghent got axed and now nobody knows about it. actually i have a volume from henry of ghent right where is it right there you just have one right there that's his um it's on free will so that's the only thing i've read from henry of ghent seems pretty lame especially since he hated saint thomas okay i'm done waiting for you militant jamie i hope you watch this later and feel bad about it okay thank you become a patron follow me you know what to do and bye. Do penance. Oh, wait, there's another comment. Gosh. Oh, man, people are asking. Okay, what if Aquinas lived to be present at Lyon too? Um, that would have, he would have definitely convinced all the Greeks because he had his, uh, he had his work against the errors of the Greeks. Just, he would have just went in there and just smashed them, smashed and dashed. Where was it Thomas, St. Thomas dismissed Bede on the non-predation of animals as unreasonable? I have to remember reading it. Thomas contradicts Basil. 
contradicts Moses in Genesis. I don't know. I haven't read that section. Well, probably have read it. I just don't remember. I don't remember the uh, the controversy. Okay. But in the words of, uh, what what is his name? I think it's like Abba Jacob. In the sayings of the Desert Fathers, I don't know. Okay. Do penance.